Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, May 16th, 2022. I'm John Budhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, I want to thank you guys for soldiering on uh, in my absence last week. As many of you know, my, my mother, who wrote under the name Mitch Dechter, passed away a week ago today very peacefully two months shy of her 95th birthday and i uh, just wanted to take a moment to thank everybody for the innumerable notes of condolence and uh, the expressions of uh, goodwill and uh, and and high feeling uh, and the outpouring of uh not only sympathy for me and my father and my sisters and our children and and my mother's grandchildren and great grandchildren, but um, also the uh, the kind of proper and I think really moving respect that people uh, paid to her uh, legacy as a writer, as a thinker, as an activist, as a mentor. Um, as a kind of uh, a, a genial, gregarious, uh, kind and friendly presence uh, who was always there for people she barely knew to give them advice, to give them counsel, to be, to represent to them the kind of life in letters and in politics that uh, you could have particularly if you were a woman, but not just if you were a woman. Uh, I remember my mother saying to my my sister, Ruthie, um, when Ruthie was expressing some frustration as a relatively young mother of four, that she, uh, you know, saw these people who were having, whose careers were sort of on the fast track. And there she was, you know, raising four kids in an apartment in Jerusalem. And she was working, but didn't feel like she was getting anywhere. And she felt so, um, uh, let's say, she felt as though she were unequal to my my mother's um, record as a woman with children who had a career, who wrote, who published books and friends of hers and stuff like that. And my mother said to her, I remember Ruthie was, I don't know, 32 or something at the time. And she said, Ruthie, I didn't publish my first book until I was 43. And then she said, you know, this phrase, you can have it all, my mother said to Ruthie. And then she said this to just so many women. You can have it all. You just probably can't have it all, all at once. And uh, th that is the kind of um, wisdom, uh, sort of like worldly, unpretentious, direct, um, and but capacious, capacious in the sense that she did not tell people that they should give up or not try or that, you know, there are some things you're meant to do and some things you're not meant to do. That wasn't her place. What she was, what she said was, if you can, you can, but don't put unreasonable expectations on yourself. Don't compare yourself to other people. Don't try to figure out who you are based on who other people are. Let yourself be yourself Give yourself time, give yourself space, be patient with the world and with yourself and let things happen. And you are then, then in a position to make them happen. And that was something 
that um, she believed that her own life history proved um, and that she lived and she was a very um, kind person. She was a very open person to a lot of people, though she was very private and was not one of the reasons that people sort of flocked to her and found her so um, appealing and uh, would say to me constantly, as I said in the eulogy that I published on the commentary website, that, you know, they would say, oh, your mother changed my life. I had a conversation with the mother and now I know what to do with my life is that she never made it about her. She didn't talk that much about herself. She was not, even though she wrote a really wonderful autobiography, if you read the autobiography, you'll discover that for an autobiography, it's very unrevealing um, in some ways. Uh, about sort of the logistical details of her life and the disappointments of her life and things like that. It's much more about what it was like to move in the world that she lived in for the first seven decades of her life. So she was not, but because she wasn't the subject, she was the critic or she was the observer or she was the, she was the guide, um, you know, people, she wasn't sort of competing for airtime when she had a conversation with people, she was genuinely interested in them and interested in helping them. She was also collecting intelligence information on the lives of Americans, the lives of American women, the lives of upper middle-class people, the lives of American Jews that she then stored, filed away in her head and used as building blocks of data for the things that she wrote about the way we live now. So it's not that she was doing this selflessly and saintly in a in a in a you know in a way it's entirely you know giving and not taking. She was taking a lot, and she was taking a lot from people who opened up to her, and she used it in these indelible essays that she wrote over the course of I don't know five decades. Um, and uh, she died peacefully. She died in no pain. She had been in decline uh, for about a year. So for her family, we got a chance to get used to the fact that she wasn't going to be with us that much longer and get used to what it might be like not to have her with us much longer. And I think it's fair to say that none of us, my sisters, my father, her grandchildren, I, none of us uh, find ourselves with any unfinished business. We, we had a, we had a, um, an unusually wonderful experience, uh, knowing her being her family. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I said on, on Facebook that it was the privilege of my life to be her son. And I still feel that and believe that. And, uh, again, uh, I think the outpouring, the unbelievably kind and uh, really wonderful pieces of writing about her by Mary Eberstadt in the Free Beacon, by Jody Bottom in the New York Post, by Phil Terzian in the Washington Examiner, and even the obituaries in the New York Times and the Washington Post were just very emotionally large-hearted in describing her really remarkable life and, and, and career. So. Um, uh, that is, that is what, what has been obviously on my mind and in my heart and in my thoughts over the past week. And again, for everybody who, who contacted me, contacted us, uh, I want to thank you very, very much for your, for your kind thoughts. And, uh, and, uh, my mind goes to where my mother who wrote really quite, uh, wonderfully about, um, 
American social crisis or the sort of spiritual crisis of ordinary Americans over the course of time uh, would have been an interesting person to talk to about what happened in Buffalo uh, over the weekend um, with this um, 18-year-old uh, shooter driving 200-some-odd miles to a majority black neighborhood to uh, open his uh, weapon, uh, kill 10 people, and then, you know, in, in, in defense of or as, as, uh, as, a, as a, a, a manifestation of this um, um, extraordinary, horrifying, and very suggestive document that he put out, this manifesto that appeared, that uh, was up, disappeared. A friend of mine captured it before Google uh, deleted it, but it's a very important American document in many ways, the way the Unabomber's document was kind of important that we should talk a little about this. But um, uh, obviously, this is going to be used for political. Uh, we're, we're about to start a week, a month, a year of efforts to try to take this and shoehorn it into current contemporary American politics and see whether it can benefit uh, you know, a party in crisis, the obvious parallels here to 1995 and the Oklahoma City bombing when Bill Clinton, who was in very low ebb, kind of used the Oklahoma City bombing to get his sea legs after uh, the incredible defeat um, of the Democrats in 1994. And I think the playbook is going to be very similar then as now, because uh, the Clinton playbook was to say that Oklahoma City somehow emerged from the mouth of uh, Rush Limbaugh that Timothy McVeigh and his accomplices, that they had somehow been stimulated to this anti-government action that led to 168 people being, you know, this bombing that killed 168 people, um, was an outgrowth of conservative media's obsession with the evils of our government. And, um, and that argument got some purchase. And I, we can hear now that almost exactly the same thing is happening with the uh, shooter's uh, interest in so-called replacement theory and how Tucker Carlson in particular and others, uh, Charlie Kirk and others have been using this term replacement theory or talking about the great replacement uh, as, a, uh, as a means of describing their political outlooks on immigration and various other things, uh, birth rates. Um, and um, I think the central issue here that the right has to cope with is I think it's evil to say that Tucker Carlson uh, is the cause of this shooter's action. After all, the document, if you haven't seen it, features a gigantic attack on Fox News for being Jewish controlled. There's a red, uh, there's a red, uh, I guess, Abe, you're, you were the one who spotted this or uh, maybe, no, no, I'm sorry, Jonah Goldberg spotted this and asked me, there's a red a Star of David right next to Rupert Murdoch's face as though somehow he was a Jew in control of the Fox News channel. Rupert is, of course, not Jewish uh, at all, uh, but that, so he hated Fox News because he thought Fox News was a sellout to, you know, to globalism and uh, nihilistic individualism, as he keeps saying in the document. Um, but I don't think that we can just stop there and say, this is terrible. This is not like Gabriel Giffords when people said, oh, Gabriel Giffords was shot. The congresswoman in Arizona was shot by Jared Lochner, the schizophrenic who shot her because of the atmosphere created in part by Sarah Palin's putting a bullseye on, on, on Gabrielle Giffords district in a mailing that, you know, or an emailing that came out months earlier. Uh, that was a like that was an absolutely shocking, you know, dereliction of 
rhetorical duty to imagine that this kid who apparently was obsessed with grammar had somehow been pushed into this as a political act. But this manifesto is very political and replacement theory is being talked about very openly on the right. And it means a lot of different things. And I don't think that we can just say, oh, how dare you? How dare you say that these ideas have nothing, you know, have anything to do with what happened here. He's evil. He did a bad thing. And uh, that's all because it's not Christine. What do you, I mean, I just don't think it's that simple. Something is up and abroad in the air that he did breathe in. Definitely. I mean, he, in, in under questioning, he said he, he, it was interesting that he, he said he got really bored during lockdown and he did deep dives into 4chan into websites that were that were you know where groups of people gather to talk about this stuff and they obviously create a self-reinforcing intellectual loop as well as a weird uh, sense of community um, and particularly at a time when when face-to-face interactions were not going on and he was sitting there uh, just just drinking this stuff in it obviously played into whatever prejudices he might have had um, he was obviously watching a lot of media uh, coverage of other violent acts and becoming frustrated because the racial element wasn't included in that. Um, you know, he didn't. I, I believe he actually cited the the Waukesha shoot. You know, the Waukesha massacre where where a, a black supremacist uh, attacker got in a truck and mowed down a parade and killed a bunch of uh, children and grandmothers and injured over sixty people. Uh, a story that that was covered briefly, but has totally disappeared from any sort of mainstream discussion of mass killing motivated by racial hatred. So he he was clearly in a in a in a situation intellectually where a lot of his worst uh, sensibilities and worst ideas were being constantly reinforced online and he also felt a sense of community and enough urgency whatever underlying uh, mental illness fuels this in all of these cases to take action. Um, the, the fact that he created a manifesto, though, is, is a step above. Like There, there are certain uh, mass uh, murder events where there is no manifesto. This one has a manifesto. It was clearly written with the idea that he was going to get publicity for this, that he wanted, he wants the world to know what he's thinking and how he feels. So in the sense that, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, this is Tucker Carlson's part and to do what a lot of pundits are already doing and suggest, you know, censorship and violations of, of free speech in order to protect us all from this this terrible uh, Tucker Carlson. That is just one small piece. But what we are what we do need to hear, and I agree with you on this, John, the right wing needs to understand that it has this underbelly and the underbelly has been scratching itself for a couple of years now and under trump was in fact actively encouraged by more extreme elements to flourish that is a huge problem and i think the sort of mainstream republicans don't want to go near that because in most cases they're disgusted by it but it's something that has to be discussed and you know lynn cheney uh, came out and said or sorry not lynn cheney um uh yeah, Lynn, Ch- Lynn Cheney oh, came out. Liz Sorry, Liz. I had Lynn Cheney on my mind. I was reading a book of hers. Uh, Liz Cheney came out already and said, look, this is a problem on the right. This is something we have to talk about. She's right about that. And conservatives and Republican politicians in particular hate to discuss this, but it's time. They need to do this. They need to talk about this problem. Okay. But we also make a, the same hideous mistake that the left is doing right now in attempting to not anathematize these ideas because they're terrible ideas, but because they led to violence. Even when they're trying to pin the blame on Republican politicians, they can't, our Republican politicians and right-wing commentators, they can't actually thread the needle to the point where they are compelled either by 
conscience or their, the experience they had in the Sarah Palin's defamation trial to say, quote, there's no indication the Buffalo gunman watched Mr. Carlson's show or any other show on Fox. And Mr. Carlson has denounced political violence. In other words, they can't make the connection that they're attempting to make in the piece that's titled Fostered Online. This fringe conspiracy theory is refashioned is by that, the GOP. Where's that quote? Where's that quote from? That's from the New York Times, okay. which has published a piece, a replacement theory espoused by the suspect in Buffalo Massacre has been embraced by some right-wing politicians and commentators. This is a terrible racist idea that deserves to be anathematized, but we don't have to do, this is absolutely like the Gabriel Gifford shooting by trying to leverage this guy's mania and madness and manifesto that he lifted two thirds of from the Christchurch shooter. Um, right. as some sort of indicative of this movement inside the United States. It is attributable to two politicians that they can name, Matt Gates and Elise Stefanik, both of whom have tried to take the Carlson route um, by sort of popularizing this idea, or at least giving it some legitimacy. And they can be evaluated on their own terms. We don't have to create a political football here, and to do so is nakedly, is, is nakedly a pursuit of political advantage. Abel? In, in his manifesto, he said that he got these, he says where he got his ideas. And he, he said, uh, quote, from the internet uh, or online. Um, that's a huge piece of this. I mean, I think, I think this, is, this is a big event. And frankly, it's, a, it's the kind of event I've been dreading um, because it brings together so many of the things that are, that are now boiling and um, seemingly escaping our ability to handle, including youth mental health crisis, youth mental health crisis, um, including the sewer that 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 is these that these these the these these social media and sort of, you know online chat platforms and 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 whatever else, um, and, and very much including. Um, the fact that our politics is, has become unprecedentedly racialized um, all across the spectrum and has become entirely shot through with conspiracy theories. Um, it's not that anyone's going to get something directly from this or that politician. It's just that there are ugly racialized conspiracy theories in the air among mainstream politicians. Um, and that there's no question that that is simply going to be picked up by people in crisis, young people in crisis, uh, mentally ill people. Um, that's not fake. That's real. It's, it's not just political. And we have to think of the speed here, because according to him, he was not a political person. In fact, he said then he says when he was 12, he, he was very much attracted to communist ideas. But he was bored. It was it was April or March of 2020. He was locked at home on, on COVID and he, he went on 4chan for gaming, I think mostly, or the, there are these, I've never been on 4chan, but I guess it's sort of like Reddit or it's sort of organized like Reddit where you have these sub forums and he found himself gravitating because of a link to the Paul forum. And it was there that all this happened to him almost all at once. And he gives direct credit to the Christchurch shooter who shot up the the mosque in, in in new zealand as his kind of intellectual mentor and guidepost um and that was two years ago like this was a two-year process and it, the, the manifesto is very 
interesting. I, I mean, I want to say this guardedly because I don't want to praise it, but it's intelligent and thorough. It is very, it does not strike me as the work of somebody who is schizophrenic. It strikes me as the work of, of someone who is evil or who had evil brewing in his body and that attached to this set of ideas because they they uh, they harmonized with this evil what what that evil is why where it comes from what its causes or roots are you know uh, a religious explanation is as good as a psychological explanation as far as i'm concerned you know but um uh he he came to see a grand design in these ideas and that's what's interesting in other words it's not disordered thinking it's actually obsessive compulsive disorder organized thinking that seeks to find a you know a kind of grand answer for everything that he thinks is going wrong with the world and what's interesting is that if you really wanted to sort of dig into it it again this is like a silly it it, it makes no sense because he is applying this idea that immigrants are coming to the united states and destroying us. And because of our low birth rate, we can't stop them. There's no way to stop them because they're going to have a higher birth rate. We have a lower birth rate. Mathematically, this is the this is a job of a century for white birth rates to rise sufficiently once it becomes clear this is necessary to overtake the demographic pattern that is going to take America down. But then he goes to Buffalo and he shoots up African-Americans. And African-Americans are not immigrants. I mean, this is, and he he tries actually at a point to kind of describe how they sort of are immigrants because they're not, but of course, they're not immigrants. They were brought to this country unwillingly. Uh, they did not choose to come here. And for most of them have been here or have roots in the United States that are far older than likely than the shooters are, than mine are, than anybody on this, <laughs> on this podcast are. And, and, um, so the replacement theory, which makes a certain ugly, disgusting sense when you're talking about an influx of people from the South who are actually coming here from somewhere else in recent times and supposedly procreating at a faster rate than others, he then applies to just simply frank old-time anti-black, racist, white supremacy. And then he come, brings in the Jews, which is where the ultimate, you know, the whole thing about cons Jews are the canary in the coal mine in the world of the conspiracy theory. And he says, he has a whole peroration on whether Jews are white or not, and how he they probably are white, though in some ways they're probably not white, but if they're white, it's worse, because Jews are therefore betraying white people by siding with this replacement idea but on the other hand they control everything and so the fact is that you get this obsessive effort to find a theory of everything and then apply it and then say my purpose here is to scare the replacers i'm doing this to terrorize the replacers to see if I can create people like me who are going to go after them. I can only do one thing. I'm going to do one thing. And then 
maybe this my cause will be taken up and then they'll know that it's open season on them and they're gonna and they're gonna run for the hills or be terrified and not start coming or something but that's not whom he shot he didn't drive to el paso and shoot people coming across the bridge you know he didn't go to mcallen texas and shoot up a you know walmart parking lot he went to the city that is closest to the canadian border in the united states crossed the you know niagara falls and then shot up black people and um that's where the politics here start getting interesting i mean i i hate to put it that way because the politics I, i mentioned this thing about you know rush in 1995 and clinton in oklahoma city well Joe Biden and the Democrats are looking at this terrible turnout, the, the, the idea that there's not going to be sufficient turnout, a lack of enthusiasm is apparently a particular issue in the African-American community. And, I, you know, um, this is obviously a moment of high racial tension, uh, you know, this idea that that a lot of people are going to have, just like Jews had it after the, after the tree of life, that, you know, it could be open season anywhere, people get ideas, they'll go to... You can go to a supermarket in Buffalo. You can go to a supermarket in Cleveland. You can go to a supermarket in Lansing, Mission. Go to a supermarket anywhere, Flint or whatever, and and shoot people up because that seems to be the thing to do. And I I think that Biden and the Democrats are are going to be tempted to exacerbate these tensions, partially because they believe it, partially because they think they're doing something noble by pointing out the dangers and evils of white supremacy and the threat and how they're the only ones who can stop it. I actually don't think that it's disingenuous on their part. They, They think, they've been saying, look, you see, we've been saying this is coming, white supremacy, white supremacy. But Biden's going to go to Buffalo tomorrow. He's going to make a speech. It's this, again, very much pattern on Clinton going to Oklahoma City and making a speech and all of that. And I don't know what the Abe said. He's been thinking that something terrible was going to happen. And I don't know what the long-term consequences of this are, are, are going to be. But the, 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 the thing to do at a moment like this is to try to quiet tensions, to point out that this is not a common practice, to point out that this is, you know, a one person's evil, or, or even to point out some of the things that, you know, Abe mentioned, like, this kid was hospital, apparently hospitalized last year because he threatened to shoot up his school. And for reasons that are, by the way, entirely legitimate, which is, you know, HIPAA, that is, he, you have the right to the confidentiality when uh, confidentiality in terms of medical treatment, particularly if you're a minor, no one is there for you shouldn't be on a watch list. You can't be, you know, you can't be sort of like put on a watch list because you said something or did something terrible when you're under the age of 18. But and yet it, here we are. But the, you're right that it's going to be Biden is going to do that. He's going to go. He immediately announced he would go there. He is going to give you know, he's going to talk about white supremacy. He's going to talk about what can we do about this? Look, the governor of New York, when I meet the press yesterday and started talking about how the First Amendment is the problem here. And we you know, I'm all for free speech, but let's get real. We got to start suppressing speech. So they're going to overreact. What they should have done is what they actually did when the Waukesha massacre happened. The Biden administration did not. Biden did not go to Waukesha. He weeks later sent 
Jill Biden to talk to first responders. It was very low key. Um, but the families in Waukesha also said, we don't want to become a political football. Like this is a horrifying thing. And it was a similar circumstance. You had someone of one race who had done lots of, who had written and published on social media, lots of horrific things against white people. In this case, he was black. Um, in this case, you have a horrific racist white guy saying terrible things about black people and Jews. It's a, the situation is not dissimilar, um, except that the, the guy in Waukesha didn't publish a manifesto, but we now see this, that we see a president who's going to go there and make political hay of this, that will be that everyone will see that as a political move at a time when actually the broader discussion of how serious, how serious a question is and a threat is white supremacy in this country. We cannot get an honest discussion of that as compared to other threats of violence. Look, over the weekend, you know how many people were shot in Chicago, in Milwaukee, in other parts of the country? We have a very violent country. If we're going to talk about the problem of violence and what is what is uh, why people are killing each other in different racial communities, we need to have that discussion without having it politicized by the Biden administration. But he's going to he's going to overreach and there's going to be a backlash to that among moderate people, not among you know the extremists on either side. Is that Abe? Do you think that there is going to be a backlash among moderate people? I'm not. I'm not so sure. Well, I think there's going to be a backlash among people on the right, and I, I, I see. And I think part of why they're people on the right are eager to stay away from a reckoning um, regarding talk of replacement theory on the right um, is because they're more consumed with. The, the accurate argument that the media and the the administration um, only call out these things when they happen on one side. Um, so they'd rather argue, they'd rather fight on that front. And I think decency demands that you have, that you fight on both. Um, That's right. Yes, right? exactly. You, you, so, you, yeah. When Tucker, you know, whom I, I mean, I should say, like, I, I was one of the people who hired him for his first major job in journalism when I was his editor for two years. I know him very well. I'm, you know, I'm friends with him. He's somebody that I have, a, you know, cordial relationship with. And I had something to do with, with his, you know, emergence as a, as a, as a serious player on the, you know, in the, in the Washington journalism scene. When Tucker started in talking about the Great Replacement and these ancillary issues, all of which are, so the Great Replacement is, there is an influx of, you know, since 1986, there's been a net influx of, I don't know, 15 million uh, illegals from Mexico. Uh, it was actually much rapid, it was much larger and much quicker, it slowed down in 2008. <laughs> Uh, but there's this, you know, big influx, and uh, and so the question is, what are the long-term consequences that's going to be in California? Certain types of conservatives, like Victor Davis Hanson and others, said California's nature is being changed. It's becoming essentially a kind of bilingual, bicultural society. But nobody was given a vote. The people who live here, who you know, this is happening largely because of an illegal population, not a legal population. No one's been given a vote here. And then there, and then you combine this with what I would what what it came to be known as natalist talk, natalist thinking, and natalist thinking is very serious, and it's it's a very large and very complex issue, which has to do with the fact that, as a society, the history suggests that as societies get more affluent over time, 
their birth rate starts to plunge and the replacement birth rate is obviously two, right? You need two births, you know, two, two people after, after you need a birth rate of two in order to simply replace the number of people that you have in your society, absent anybody coming in as a new, you know, citizen or a new resident. And all throughout the, the developed world, the birth rate has been plunging. So in Italy, I think the birth rate is now 1.2. Japan, it's like 1.1 or 1.2. And, you know, basically it means there won't be enough people to pair off to have children and have the same number of children in succeeding generations. And what does this mean? And there's a lot of uh, philosophical thinking that says that this is this decline is the result of a lack of uh, faith in the future and a lack of interest in power. I don't know. There's also, and then there's also, no, people are living longer. They're living longer. They don't have to have 10 children because only five will survive. And so everybody's set of ideas and there's birth control and there's stuff. So there aren't unwanted children. And so that you don't, you don't have to replace the way you did once simply to perpetuate the human race. But this is a very complicated, there's a lot of interesting thinking and it's serious, it's demographic, it's very complicated. But it then, then tied in with this idea that there were these people from the South who were coming, who were gonna have a lot of children and we weren't having any children and that they would somehow then change the nature and character of the United States. That kind of thinking has been prevalent in the thinking of the United States about immigrants forever. It was the source of the Know Nothing movement. It was the source of um, the immigration restriction of the 1920s that at some point, you know, in 1905 or 1910, 25% of the population of New York City was not native born. One quarter of the people in the largest city in either in the country were not, were, were, were immigrants. And this scared the crap out of people. Uh, because it was like these people were coming in, they spoke languages we didn't speak, they had folk customs that we didn't know, they might have ideas that are different from our ideas, and they're going to change us, and we're going to be different, and it's going to be terrible. And it, I, it should add that led yeah. to, it was a very specific group of people. In 1924, Immigration Restriction Act was targeted at Southern and Eastern Europeans because those were Jews and Catholic immigrants that were coming in. So it was, they were happy to get the, the Protestant yeah. Europeans weren't the ones they set quotas on. It was the Jews and Catholics coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. In the, right. And right. Congress passed a big immigration restriction bill in 1924. Right. And of course, America did change. It became a different place. And some would say it became a better place, but it did become a different place. Countries don't stay static, uh, and no, no, no dynamic country is static, almost by definition. People move, and new industries are created. They go from the country to the city. You know, they they go from the working class to the middle class. All that stuff. But in this alarmist reading of Western culture, in which we've lost faith in our in our in our ideas, these people are coming from elsewhere. Um, they're going to change our character. We're not having any children because we think that we're, you know, we're losing and we're being swamped. And these new people have all these new ideas about the evils of white people, which are depressing white people and giving them more license to bring their horrible new cultures to bear on the United States. It all then is cooked in a pot and it becomes this toxic brew that is on 4chan and 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 it's not just here obviously since yeah the shooter's main um 
uh, uh, mentor, intellectual mentor, was the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand, who was not an American, obviously, uh, but wanted to go at Muslims in New Zealand. So uh, the point here is that Tucker and these guys, and they're, they're, these are all ideas, are doing these long-form shows and discussing these ideas. And each of these ideas individually has merit as a point of discussion. How much immigration do we want or need? How, how much is good for us? How do, we, how do we acculturate or assimilate new immigrants and all of that? What do we do about the birth rate? And what do we do about Black Lives Matter and this, these attacks on, on the American legitimacy of the dead white European males who created this extraordinary political experiment? But then you put them all in a pot and you put them together and they create something toxic and dangerous. And the obvious word when Tucker and these people were doing these, Tucker's doing these documentaries is, it's incendiary, right? These are, he's, he's up to something incendiary. What does incendiary mean? It means he's playing with fire and something may blow up. Now that's something we say, we don't really mean. It's like we say, oh, this is bad, it's dangerous. This, these ideas are dangerous, right? But we don't really mean it because we don't really think ideas are dangerous. And then somebody comes along, one person out of 330 million, and he breathes in this toxicity and he looks at these ideas and he goes to a gun store and he buys an assault rifle and he shoots 10 people. That's one person out of 330 million. Is that a national crisis? Is that something we need to look at and say, this is an American crisis of, of you know, a cultural disaster that we need to deal with? And the funny thing is, it kind of is like I, I, you know, on the one hand, you could, you can, you can argue it away ten thousand ways from Sunday. Not that people are doing that, but we know there's some soul sickness in America. We know that this is going on all over the place. That people are feeling unrooted, disconnected. That you know, there's this teen mental health crisis of unprecedented proportions, particularly with girls. That that there's a there's a there's a suicide crisis. That people were there was an overdose crisis. You know, the miserable 21st century that Nick Everstead talked about, and things are coming home to roost in some way or other. People are committing misdemeanors with with the full knowledge that they're not going to get prosecuted. There's more burglaries. There's more murder. There were, uh, there's more road rage. People were in more car accidents in 2020 and 2021 with half the number of cars on the road than they had been in any of the previous ten years. Like something bad and toxic is going on. Wait a minute. Wait, a minute, wait a minute. We're talking ourselves into some sort of idea that legitimizes this this thing, John. It's bizarre. The notion here that there are more cars on the road, less cars on the road, producing more accidents. The reason why there are more accidents is because people were driving more recklessly because there were fewer cars on the road. Okay. I mean, this, so this you've a, answered that. So you've answered that. Well, so let um, me drop that. I'm, well, we could talk about half a dozen other ways in which this idea that there's some sort of soul sickness here. There's conspiratorial thinking that is prevalent on the part of Americans, we have a tendency to be conspiratorial, just as we have a tendency to be violent. Um, the salience of this particular idea is resonant, according to an um, uh, AP uh, NORC poll uh, published last month, is, is resonant with about 33% of the public to the extent that they're even being honest about that. But that's just a conspiratorial bent. It's not a Republican bent, for example, because Republicans are less likely to the tune of 25% to believe in this thing versus the quote unquote conspiratorial thinkers. Um, we're talking, we're, con we're confusing categories and creating, a, uh, establishing much broader salience and purchase for this idea than I think is warranted or merited, particularly its violent elements. I mean, this is everybody is, who's playing with this racist rhetoric is being reckless and irresponsible, but we should apply it to the people who are being reckless and irresponsible and not 
overextend the extent to which this is a, a relevant, uh, a legitimate line of thought among average Americans. I think so many people are being reckless and irresponsible, Noah. And I think, and that honestly, it applies an enormous deal to, to people on the left, to, to uh, official figures and politicians and leaders on the left. They have been contributing to an entirely racialized uh, version of American politics. And that's going to lead somewhere. I'm not laying the, 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 the dead lives at their feet. I'm not, this is not, I'm, but you know, I'm not, that's a crass, you know, but um, that has been going on doggedly for two years now. Um, and somewhat less doggedly, but not much for for 10 years. Um, and it's going to create these these crazy bifurcations and it's going to create counter reactions. And this is very, very widespread stuff. I mean, it's a weird. Everything you say is true, Noah, everything. But the incidents um, are very large. And, you know, they're, they're large and they have disproportionate impact and they're intended to by the people who do them. And the question then is, and it's a, just fiendishly difficult, what responsibility do intellectuals, media figures, politicians, propagandists, what responsibility do they have when ideas that they promulgate or let, let's put this place, synthesis, the syntheses of these ideas that that are together toxic that's what i mean like as i say individually these are all ideas that are arguable or within the realm of proper common discussion but the, the synthesizing of these ideas then creates an unstable atmosphere and nobody has ever been able really to get a handle on this and i don't have a handle on it but their responsibility is not zero it's not a hundred and it's not 50, it's not zero. It could be three, it could be six. I mean, I, I don't even know. Can I just, yeah. just to add on to something though that Abe was saying that I think is important to add to this mix, because I agree with you, John, but there's a climate, the climate that Abe was describing uh, is there, there's a very one-sided focus on this in the mainstream media. And there are plenty of people in this country who were who would not otherwise find themselves radicalized who during the past two years, would see reality happening in front of them and then listen to a constant stream of people on television, in newspapers and political officials telling them that's not happening to you. That is not reality. That's not happening. You, you're not seeing what you're seeing. And I think what happens is we now have an alternative sphere that you can deep dive into, whether it's 4chan or Reddit or Discord, wherever you decide to find it, you can find other people who have had that experience and they'll say, you're, you know what, they're wrong. You're right. This is happening. And it's even worse than you think. And the conspiracy theory has an entire world online that it has existed for a time. But I do think that there, the way that this kid described kid, he's an adult, he's responsible for his murderous behavior. He described that kind of uh, radicalization, that finding a world where suddenly everything he couldn't understand because what he saw did not comport with what he was told had an answer. And it was a horrible conspiracy theory driven by racism, but it made sense to him because of a lot of what was ambient in his world up to that point did not make sense. And whether that was the result of mental illness or just the culture he's grown up in is debatable. But that 
I, I have read and heard and listened to people have that migration. And at some point, a lot of people stop. They're like, well, this is crazy. I don't think JFK Jr. is coming back from the dead to you know go to the White House, yeah. like the QAnon stuff. But not everybody stops along that journey. Some just continue. Right. The, but then you have, and this, is, this supports Abe's point. So I was watching the Billboard Music Awards last night. Okay? Billboard Music Awards. Oddly enough, Kanye West was like a co-host, which itself is a pretty dangerous thing to have happen. Um, and um, but anyway, at some point out of nowhere, they announced that they are presenting an award because of everything that's happened in this country and the you know to Tamika Mallory, the middle of a music award show. Tamika Mallory is one of the founders of the Women's March and was one of the subjects of this amazing investigative report in Tablet two years ago, revealing uh, the deep anti-Semitic associations at the head of the Women's March, particularly Tamika Mallory, and how Tamika Mallory was basically a propagandist or an apologist for, or in other ways, some kind of a representative of Louis Farrakhan, who is, you know, who is a extraordinarily virulent you know anti-conspiracist anti-semite and there she was i think it was nbc standing there accepting an award and saying you know we have to watch out we all need to come together da, 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 da. um she had to quit the women's march right she had to quit her role in the women's march or she was fired i think i don't know that she quit I, I can't really remember how it worked because of this fact and there it is she's being cleansed uh, you know on national television so not only is it you know are both sides not policing themselves but um but the effort is made to you know white or you know or 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 um bleach the stains that people deserve to have on their names and to and to say that they don't matter because other things matter more it's not like there aren't 250 million people in the United States who could have been brought up on the stage to accept, first of all, why that's happening during the Billboard Music Awards is another question, but, you know, anybody could have gotten that award. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, not anybody, but, you know, you know what I'm saying? Give it to Amanda Gorman and she'd come out and read a poem. I mean, it's not, it, it's an interesting fact. And that's, of course, what the, the danger of Biden's appearance tomorrow is that he will do precisely this that he will not say everybody chit like you this is terrible what's going this is a horrible thing and stuff is going on and it has to stop this white supremacy but you know what you know all of this talk about how america was born in racism and everything is white privilege and if any white you know every 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 eight-year-old white kid needs to be confronted with his own privilege in second grade and da 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 da, -da. And he's not going to do the second part. He's only going to do the first part. And he will be praised for only doing the first part. And, and that's, that's, that's terrible. The other way of looking at it is, I think, some amended version of the way Noah is sort of describing this, which is these ideas are reckless and irresponsible, but the responsibility for the actions, we must, as a moral matter, re reserve for those who act. I mean, it is important. You can't ally the distinction between people who think bad things but don't act on them and the people who think bad things and act on them. That's a huge difference. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's, it's all the difference.
is that people who are restrained because they have a moral sense, even if they're tempted by ideas that push evil buttons, deserve to be praised for their restraint or deserve to be accepted in the community of people because they don't do these things. Would that and be if the president is attempt- and if the, if the president tries to leverage this for political gain, he will be the reckless and irresponsible one. Right. Because but yes, Tucker Carlson question. says a lot of terrible things. And Elise Stefanik and Matt Gates are playing footsie with ideas they know to be irresponsible. They deserve to be condemned for it. They do not need to be linked to a mass murderer, especially when there is no linkage there. Not even the press, this particular article that strove mightily to lay the blame for this bloodshed at the feet of Fox News could well, do, then, could achieve and, it. So if the president decides to do that, decides to marshal the public, rally the public around the idea that Republicans are responsible for this kind of violence because they have played uh, a, a coy role in advancing these ideas, it will be politically foolish uh, because it's probably unlikely to work. I don't think this is something that you're going to rally the country around and certainly won't save democratic prospects and, and somehow paper over inflation as the major issue. And it will be incredibly irresponsible because it will only popularize these ideas that they're seeking to, they want to anathematize, but they really don't. Because if this is your, if this is your lifeline uh, in November, then you don't want to anathematize this idea and bury this idea. You want to popularize it, shout it from the rooftops. Which means Bernie Sanders and Rachel Maddow are responsible for the congressional softball shooting. Because right, the which guy we who, know the, to be insane. Right, which is also insane. But that yeah. guy, that guy actually wrote mash notes to Rachel Maddow about how she inspired. Her. I mean, you could do this with in, in many, many cases where the, the left would not be happy with the results. So I totally agree with you, Noah. That's just it's you've you got to separate those two. Uh, okay, the other I just me, want to say, go ahead. Just, sorry. The other manifestation of the recklessness um, that will be Biden's if and when he goes the route we're describing, is that all of this will very likely contribute to some sort of horrific counterattack, right? There's, there's, there's going to be uh, perhaps something resembling uh, uh, what, what uh, Daryl Brooks did in Waukesha. Um, and we can keep going this way. I mean, November's a long way away. Uh, so who, who knows where we'll be by then? in this sort of hideous tit for tat. Um, Okay, so uh, I'm going to um, try to pull back a little bit and um, uh, in an effort to, uh, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I was going to do an ad read, but I think this is not a good place to do the ad read for the the very kind advertiser who has advertised with us. So I'm going to forbear and do it, do it tomorrow. Let's move on to uh, two other topics. We're running long, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the baby formula shortage, um, which is an absolutely fascinating subject and is bigger than anybody realizes. I think there was a really fantastic piece in the New York Post last Friday about this that I that was very eye-opening and that is now being essentially confirmed by everybody else in the media who are trying to soft pedal the meaning of it, which is that this is a baby formula shortage created by a regulatory agency run amok. Um, The FDA uh, apparently essentially forced the closure 
of this single plant where there were some questions about whether or not some baby formula had been adulterated and the plant shut down to retool its machinery or something like that for, for, for two months. And uh, we not only did not prepare anybody for this or the FDA, which kind of pushed this, did not sort of like look at what the possible consequences would be of the voluntary recall and the suggestion that the you know stuff be looked at, but did not also then convene some kind of emergency meeting to say, okay, what do we do if this happens? There's baby formula all over Europe. We don't allow into the United States because it does not conform with our FDA standards. But obviously we could relax the regulations on an emergency basis for three months to get baby formula in from Germany and wherever so that there is a you know continuance of service. Nobody did this. Nobody thought to do it. Nobody at the FDA apparently alerted the White House. Nobody in the Council of Economic Advisors or the FTC or the Federal Trade Committee, anybody who might have been able to game out what it might mean if Abbott closed this plant for two months was apparently involved in any discussion of this. And this is the crisis of liberal regulatory regimes run amok, that since they assume that they're regulating in the public interest, they do not understand the nature of the unanticipated consequence that might arise. And if they were listening, they might've been able to figure it out. And this is gonna be really, really, really bad. This is gonna be very bad for, as the as this becomes clear and as people are no longer like saying i don't know how this happened it's crazy there's all this baby formula shortage this is why it happened there's no other reason why it happened the federal government forced the closure of a of a formula processing plant and created a massive shortage the federal government what do you think now, the number of people who use baby formula at any given time is relatively small in the United States. It's, you know, 750,000 people or, I don't know, something like that, a million people, something like that. So it's not a huge number of people who are, you know, it's not like you have a milk shortage or a, you know, gasoline shortage or something like that. But this may be, this is why you can never game politics out because something like this happens. It's like Deepwater Horizon or something. And then you just have a kind of moment of, oh my God, what do we do about this? There's another fire over here. And the, the administration has no ability to put the fire out. It would be like Deepwater Horizon if the, if the White House had just ignored it or pretended that it wasn't a real thing or it was going to resolve itself and not <clears throat> transformed it into this spectacular crisis. So they, they wanted it to be a crisis. And there's a lot of revisionism around this Deepwater Horizon event. But it was the moment when everybody sort of went, okay, well, Barack Obama, when are you going to get tough? When are you going to show some anger, some hostility, uh, you know, drop this affect, this aloof affect of yours and, you know, demonstrate how, um, how you know, irritated we are by the conditions, political conditions that were supposed to materialize after Democrats stormed uh, into a, a surge into office and controlled all the levers of government for the first time in 2008. And they didn't see what they wanted to see. They hadn't gotten Obamacare yet. They had only gotten the stimulus and it wasn't satisfying, satisfying enough. And Republicans were on the way to uh, take control of Congress. And it was obvious you could see that coming from a mile away. So they wanted something to change the narrative. And they made Deepwater Horizon into this into a bigger event. 
I think honestly, than it deserved to be a political event. It was a, it was a national crisis, an environmental crisis. It wasn't a political event. It was made into a political event. And if that's a temptation here, um, this certainly is when it comes to the violence that we were talking about before, but the White House doesn't have any answer for this. So they, they're going to try to undermine it or underplay it. They're not going to, they're it's not going to create the, you know, make, make it this, no, but, this the, the crisis that it objectively is. No, but Biden said last week, Biden said, we're not mind readers. Right. I no, mean, if it, I were a mind reader, then I would have known that there was a baby formula shortage coming, but he's not a mind reader. He runs a political and, and executive organization that is responsible for the shortage. And whatever and, happened to the buck stops here? Well, the other contrast, I think, timing wise for them, that's not going to look great is if they do downplay it, which I think Noah's right, is what they're going to try to do it or they're going to claim, oh, it's because there's only four companies that manufacture for me. You know, they're going to try to pass the buck to someone else at the same time that their focus relentlessly on the left right now is abortion rights. It's like you can't feed like they don't care about the kids that are born that don't have access to nutrition right now. But let's focus on abortion. I mean, I know that this is not what, you know, that this is a timing thing. They couldn't choose the timing of it. But that that rhetoric is in, in constant uh, conflict with each other, if you will. Like if people are worried about being able to feed a baby and all the Democrats want to talk about is Roe. I'm just saying, if you say we're going to be tough on corp, we're, you know, it's enough with this Republican libertarian. They just let businesses run roughshod and do whatever they want to do. And the major interface that Americans see between the Biden administration and the private sector is that it foolishly and recklessly and irresponsibly interacted with a manufacturer of baby formula in such a way that the factory was shuttered in order to conform with FDA regulations and not to get sued and not to get this and not to get that. And that no steps were taken that are very obvious to have continuance of baby formula service by allowing in baby formula manufactured in other countries that uh, where you relax the FDA standards or, or whatever they conform to their own countries, EPAs and, and FDAs and not ours. And we can presume, therefore, that the Germans don't want to poison their babies with baby formula, and therefore their baby formula is perfectly adequate for American babies, too. But that didn't happen because they're not good at this. It's a bad this administration. They do, they're do they incompetent, and they don't think things through, and no one is thinking. And so they not only have this ideological problem, they have a practical problem, which is that they did this and no one's going to be able to say that it's unfair to say that they did it because they did it. Biden's excuse that I'm not a mind reader and I didn't see this coming perfectly echoes what he said uh, when there was the uh, at the start of the winter, the 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 last uh, wave. And I guess I don't, I'm already forgetting which was which was that was that Omicron? That was Omicron. Yeah, that was Omicron. And and there was there were insufficient tests and masks or just tests at that point. And he said, look, no one could have predicted this. We couldn't have predicted this. You know, how many times can you go to that? Well, I mean, I guess for when, him a lot, particularly when people predicted it. I mean, right. That was, right. When everyone predicted it. And yeah, Afghanistan when, when... was the same thing. How could right. we have predicted this? That's right. Chaos? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I just think it's a very it's an interesting thing. Like when we say you don't know what's going to happen between now and November. Right. So two things have happened. Uh, one of them being this uh, theoretical overturning of Roe and the other being 
right now, this horrific shooting in, in Buffalo, that probably suggested they have, have certainly Rose suggests Democrats they think that they have an opening to win back suburban women, particularly who may, may have been deserting them by by pressing the idea that, you know, by them believing that suburban women want abortion on demand or some version of it, and that, you know, if they can push this point, they will sour them on Republicans. To which point, and this is what I want to close out on, we had a discussion on our on our chat here about this latest NBC News poll. So there's an NBC News poll came out that NBC News spun at as 60% of people want uh, abortion legal. or so it was, I can't remember quite the, what the phrasing was. But it was 60% of people want the Roe regime on abortion, something like that. And so therefore, obviously, Republicans are playing with fire. But if you looked at the numbers, it said that um, 37% of people thought abortion should be legal in all circumstances. 20-some-odd percent said it should be legal except in certain circumstances. 35% said it should be illegal except in certain circumstances. And 5% okay, I actually, said... I have it, so we should... Oh, you do? Okay, go yeah, ahead. We should Sorry. be clear about the numbers. Okay. Always legal, 37%. Legal most of the time, whatever that means, 23%. Legal with exceptions, 32%. Illegal, uh, without any exceptions, 5%. The combined 60% answering legal is the highest percentage on this question dating back to 2003, according to Mark Murray at NBC News. Okay, so he says you combine legal in all cases and legal in some cases, and you come out with 60%. So this is the Rorschach test. Is that the right math? Or is the math that people think that abortion should be legal in most circumstances or illegal except with exceptions. 55%. Those are closer together, in my view, than legal and then legal with exceptions. Right, that's 55% if illegal if with you exceptions add legal, and legal with exceptions. Huh, go ahead. It, no, it, just the math works out perfectly because if you were to add uh, legal most of the time, legal, illegal with exceptions, and illegal all the time, it comes out to exactly 60%. Right. So I think that obviously 37% is abortion on demand. 5% is abortion, is, no, is, is, is a complete pro-life, no abortions under any circumstances. And then you have this middle that is, I, uh, yeah, there's abortion, but either my my bias is toward it being illegal, but I can see exceptions, or my bias is toward it being legal, but there need to be circumstances in which in which it is not legal. If you ask me, that's the number. The number is people are uneasy with abortion, not easy with abortion, and that number is 60%. You can spin it any way you want to. The question is how people actually feel and how they're going to vote based on how they feel. Issue polling and, is horrific. And this is a particular okay. issue polling that I don't think you can derive any sort of meaning from. But it's quite plain that Democrats see opportunity here and think this is the way to do it. That poll also found that the generic ballot had tightened to the point that it was even, 46-46 Republican Democratic. Um, and yet, if you go by the total positive and negative feelings about people and institutions down in that poll. It's just like Ron DeSantis, the Supreme Court, the GOP, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. The institution that has the highest negative rate is the Democratic Party. 
the most um, despised institution in America is the Democratic Party with 50% negative rating. Worse than the GOP, worse than Donald Trump, worse than Joe Biden. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if abortion is going to save you if that's the odor around your vehicle. The other thing is that the uh, they say 4646, but Biden uh, Biden's approval in that poll is 39 percent and his disapproval, I think, is 52. Um, those numbers don't jive. That is in the, it, when you get to Election Day. Biden's approval disapproval rating is going just as that this is also true that this didn't used to be true because people used to vote differently from their parts and preferences. Uh, in congressional elections, and much less now than they used to, but uh, they're much more inclined now to vote their partisan preferences. But so, as a result, there's something hinky about those numbers. Like the Democrats in Congress are running seven points ahead of Biden. Really? I mean, is that do people are 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 ordinary adults who are these? Are they actually making these distinctions where? I don't like Biden, but I like my Democratic representative. Maybe. I mean, that used to be real. That used to be a real thing. You know, Reagan would win 49 states and and Democrats would retain control of the House of Representatives. So Republicans ran ahead of Trump. Republicans ran ahead of Trump. Exactly. So anyway, I don't know. I'm very I'm very. And the right track, wrong track number is just insane it's 70 16 wrong track right track and democrats are the party in power my i think my point is that issue polling is bad democrats see an opportunity but then you get this poll which i think red right should say abortion's not so open and shut that you can say oh the republicans want to take it away from you and that's going to be something that people are going to tweak to I don't think that's how you should read this poll, but they're going to want to read it this way and they will. And then they're going to push the issue even more. And then that's where you could get the public going, boy, they're really obsessed with making sure that everybody has an abortion. You know, it's, you know, there's more cringing in these abortion numbers than Democrats are giving any credit for in a way that suggests that it's not going to be great for them to be running on abortion for, for five months. But they don't want to see it that way. And the media doesn't want to see want them to see it that way. So they're going to report this poll as 60% want abortion, which is not what it says. It's just not what it says. I mean, it doesn't say 60% want, you know, no want uh, no abortions, but it doesn't say 60% want abortions. It says 37% want abortion on demand. That's abortion in all circumstances. And everybody else is not that comfortable, you know, has levels of discomfort ranging from I'm mostly okay with it to I don't want it at all. And that's not how it's being talked about. So I don't know how they, you know, it's once again, do you want to be told how important is it for people to be told what they want to hear? Or shouldn't they be listening to what they need to know so that they can actually make proper plans and actually try to say things that people want to hear to save themselves? I don't know. Okay, well, uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoretz, keep the candle burning.